0: The Book Club is brought to you in association with Charles Stanley Community, providing our clients, colleagues and friends with practical support and conversation. Find out more at Charles Stanley Community. Hello and welcome to Spectator Book Club. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week's podcast is a discussion with Adam Begley, the biographer of John Updike, uh, Felix Tournichon, who has now turned his attention to... The Great Houdini. This was a recording of an event held over Zoom for the Circle Square networking group for over 55, so we're happy to record this in association with them. It's a very great treat to be here chairing Adam, whom I have now a relatively reasonably long and friendly relationship with, though we've only now met virtually, as well as being the distinguished biographer of John Updike, the 20th century novelist. He's written a biography of Félix Tournachon, Nadar, a uh, sort of 19th century aeronaut, photographer, self-publicist, caricaturist and jack-of-all-trades, and now Houdini, the great escapologist. He's also, to my great delight and, and gratitude, a regular contributor to my pages on The Spectator and improves them every time he's in them. So, welcome, Adam. Now, Adam, as I've, I've just sketched out, you know, there's quite a range in your subjects, you know, you've dotted around. Now you've moved on to Houdini. What is it that that made you light on him after, you know, moving from a literary novelist to an aeronaut? Why now an escapologist?
1: I have to admit that the topic was suggested to me. I didn't dream it up on my own. But the moment it was suggested, I realised that it was um, something I wanted to do, mostly because I wanted to hone my skills as a storyteller. And it seemed to me that this was A great story with many acts and a dramatic finish, and that um, for once I'd be writing about somebody that everybody knew, because frankly, Updike isn't as well known as he ought to be, and Nadal, despite my best efforts, isn't known at all.
0: Yeah. Well, Houdini, he's known to the extent that the very word Houdini is kind of part of the language. And yet, who he actually was is a trickier, a trickier proposition. I mean, what, what kind of man was he? I mean, we, we just see him as images, as a sort of bloke dangling in a straitjacket or you know, looking mysterious at us. What, what sort of man did you find when he started to dig?
1: Well, he's a, he's a very complicated man and a, a very interesting man. I think of him as a ball of energy. Um, I think of him mostly as a body but I also think of him as a tremendous will to success, an ambition that was all-consuming. And then of course, he had um, a peculiar genius and you could say the genius was for getting breaking out of things, but that's not really true. The genius was for publicity and for self-publicity, which makes him uh, a peculiarly modern figure.
0: I mean, with the breaking out of things, You say very early on, you know, like, I'm not going to talk about how he does that.
1: Uh, Yeah. The reason for that is that when you explain a magic trick or when you show somebody how handcuffs are opened magically, it becomes not magic and it loses the fun of it. Magic explained loses its luster. And Houdini knew that. He said himself, if I told you how I did my tricks, You would be instantly bored by them. So does that, from
0: the off, kind of make you a collaborator with Houdini, in a sense, as a biographer, you have to Um, collude in that,
1: do you? I never like to call myself a collaborator, Sam, but I'd like to think that I have joined in some way the fraternity of magicians who always refuse to um, divulge secrets. But... I can tell you one thing that there's always a secret. There's always a trick. There is no, you know, there's no magical magic. Magic is always boring and mechanical or involves a lot of dexterity and then something boring and mechanical. I I hope I'm not disappointing the fans of magic out there who uh, like to see a puff of smoke and imagine that something transplendent has occurred. Now-
0: What got Houdini started? I mean, you've talked about this kind of extraordinary drive he had, this ambition to, you know, propel himself to heights of celebrity and success. But, you know, what what made him think that escapology was going to be it? I mean, how, you know, it's not an obvious route to success. is dangling upside down in a straitjacket.
1: No, but it is show business. And show business was obvious for penniless Jews, as anybody who's looked at the roster of great showmen. From the end of 19th century, beginning of 20th century, and as Hollywood took over, as, as um, the Marx brothers' mother said, you know, where else could a kid who goes knows nothing makes money? So, but he he got his start because he wanted to he wanted to make himself known, and he discovered magic through the autobiography of a guy named Robert Houdin, who was a great 19th century magician. And he became completely obsessed with this man and with his tricks and became a magician to become like Houdini and in fact, like Robert Houdin. And in fact, he called himself Houdini because he thought adding an I to Houdin meant like Houdin. So Houdini is like Robert Houdin.
0: You've talked about the you know, need to make money and the fact that as a you know, young Jewish person, he was, he was quite marginalized. I mean, His own father seems to kind of, you know, he's got two fathers really in this book, one of whom is Houdin and the other one of his, can you tell us a little about Houdini's early life and his relationship with his father?
1: Well, his father was a um, rabbi who was born in, uh, as Houdini was in in Hungary and, um, and left Hungary in the early 1870s without his family and moved to Appleton, Wisconsin, um, where he became a rabbi with a tiny congregation. And then the family followed him when Houdini, whose name was Eric Weiss when he was a youngster, where when he was four years old, he came over. And then the, when Houdini was about eight, his father lost his job as the rabbi. And this was a terrible moment in the Houdini household, the Weiss household, as it was then. And they were really plunged into serious poverty. And so from the from age 8 onwards it was obvious that Houdini was going to have to make his way in the world because his father somehow didn't manage to assimilate. He never became an American. He was he never learned English. He spoke he spoke Yiddish, he spoke Hungarian, and he spoke some German, but he didn't speak he never learned English. And I think this was part of Houdini's drive was to become American and to become a success and to avoid above all the failure that was his father.
0: And he did sort of reinvent and occlude his origins, didn't he? I mean, he claimed to have been born in America. He played down a lot of the time his
1: Jewishness. Uh, yeah, yes, he, he, uh, his first pseudonym was um, Eric White. But uh, yes, he he was uh, a strange kind of Jew and, and faithful in some ways to the end to his religion but he never played it up. I mean, he never he never asserted himself as Jewish publicly and repeatedly.
0: He also, I mean, the, the, the reimagining his origins plays into it, but,
1: you know, one of the aspects of Houdini's character is that he was the most fantastic liar. Oh, absolutely. He, early on, he insisted that he was uh, born in America. He just simply cut out the first four years of his life. And... Uh, he would lie about pretty much anything because it was part of his job to make you believe that one thing was happening when another thing was happening. But also he believed that um, he had to be the best and the greatest. And if he wasn't matching that particular standard, he would simply move the goalposts or inflate his achievements or obfuscate or prevaricate. He was, um, truth was not a value that he had in any degree. Does that present difficulty for a biographer? You know, not more than anybody else. Biographers are always having to sort between the the true, the half true, and the outright false. And with Houdini, it was just a, another. I mean, you just, in some ways, it was a helpful because you knew that he was lying. If he, you know, it's a little bit like Trump. If he says something, you can just pretty much assume the opposite. And and, you know, he was sort of endearing about it. I mean, he he would always exaggerate everything. So if he held his breath underwater for three minutes, suddenly it was eight minutes. Um, you know, if he was buried alive for a half an hour, suddenly it was two hours and a half. He just couldn't help himself.
0: That sense that he was, you know, shifting his origins, pushing back, I mean, there seems to be a point in his career at which he basically leaves the kind of vaudeville circuit... You know he he is in this kind of slightly hucksterish carny people, mm-hmm. marginal position, and then suddenly he's as it were on Broadway. I mean sometimes he's literally on Broadway.
1: And yeah, he it was the it was the promotion to vaudeville that occurred in about um, eighteen ninety eight ninety seven, and it was sudden. And he went from being a kind of sideshow carny and playing in dime store museums and in in um, circuses. Um, really low rent stuff, hand to mouth existence, and suddenly he was a top billed vaudeville pr- performer in theaters, and he had respect, and he had a contract, and he had a, a sense of himself as as having made it. And this is when Houdini's character really comes to the fore, and he becomes um, a bit of a, a bit of a prima donna and a, a relentless self promoter with tremendous success I mean he he would he could make vaudeville theatres come alive and he could bring in the punters
0: and what what really mattered to him in that was it was it the sort of money or was it the sense of you know being a step above
1: these marginal carny folk um, I think that the step above meant more money never really meant a lot to him i mean he he didn't know what to do with it he was he he made a lot of money and he spent a lot of money, but he never cared about money uh, What he wanted was applause and he wanted recognition of being the best, the greatest. anything below the greatest didn't count for him
0: was he a very self respect reflective man i mean did no. he have-
1: I'll stop you right there. No, <laughs> Houdini didn't, I mean, he didn't, for example, ponder the meaning of his escapes or his jumps. And I mean, well, actually, Jolene, uh, Nolene, could you play the, um, the, the clip of him, of Houdini jumping off the bridge? Nolene's going to show you a little film. What you're, what you're about to see is a film um, that lasts two minutes of Houdini jumping off a bridge with his hands manacled. And it's a very short film, and it sort of shows what the attraction of Houdini is and why he managed to bring so many people together and make pe- make people ad- adore him, as it were. Um, and one of the things you see is how big the crowd is for this. It's in 1907, and it's in Rochester, New York, um, and he's jumping off something called the Waylock Bridge.
0: At this point, Adam showed us the video of Houdini's jump. You can find a link to the YouTube of this in the podcast description.
1: I love his legs kicking out there. Yeah, you, you, of course it's a, a silent film, so you don't hear what he said, but according to newspaper reports, just before he jumped, he said goodbye, which is a classic Houdini stagecraft and sense of uh, the drama.
0: You know, you've said he he was the best and he needed to be the best. You know, there were a lot of people doing magic. There were presumably quite a few people doing escapology. What was it, apart from publicity, that he did better than everybody else? What were the special talents he had in that that department?
1: I, I would love to tell you that he was the world's greatest magician, but virtually everybody who knows anything about magic, prestidigitation, the, the business of you know, pulling a rabbit from a hat or shuffling cards or making coins disappear, say that he actually wasn't at the top level. And there was, for example, a, a magician called Howard Thurston, who was his contemporary, who was streets ahead of him and who was known for his his uh, absolutely beautiful magic tricks. So Houdini always wanted to be the best magician, but never quite made it. But he did other things that other people didn't do, which was that he allowed himself to be in positions where he was very likely to die if he got it wrong. And that, as he pointed out, that the easiest way to attract a crowd, he once said, is to let it known at a given time that in a given place, someone is going to attempt something that in the event of failure will result in sudden death. And that was something that galvanized people, as you saw in that jump. And then he had another trick that was fantastic, which was the suspended straitjacket escape. He'd be in a straitjacket, and he would wriggle and wriggle and, and thrash about and finally get rid of it, and then he would drop the the straitjacket and assume this Christic pose, this inverted Christ pose, which is quite special. And sometimes he'd be 100 feet up in the air and do this. And so there again you have, um, he did things that people wouldn't, otherwise few. And by the way, these were all for free, of course. He wasn't charging anyone to see this. He was doing this to attract audiences to his shows in the theatres. And also because he loved a crowd and loved applause.
0: And was he sort of very physically dexterous? I mean, he's quite a kind of built character. You know, he's, you know, you talk oh, about yeah.
1: seeing his body as being part of the whole thing. Oh, yeah. You know, his body is a big deal because It was always being locked up and submitted to these terrible tortures, and then he would come out and be free and liberated, and you would see this buff body, and this would give you and, I guess, him some kind of release. What kind of release, I'm not quite sure.
0: Does that speak to a sort of vast appetite for untapped S&M in the...
1: Well, audience, it, it, the, the, there are more photographs of this man in chains than of virtually anyone who isn't an SM practitioner or, a, you know, sort of a full-time professional, I don't know, what do you call them? If you're a madam, but you're a male, I don't know. Dominator.
0: Now, he was obviously the most famous person in the world, or one of them. He had this extraordinary body. You know, you might have thought that he would use this to embark on a life of sexual
1: Dissolution, and yet he, he wasn't like that at all, was he? No, um, he, he was a, a very prudish man. When he be, became a, a movie star at one point and made about five or six really, really awful movies. But one or two of them were quite successful, spread his brand name all over the place. But he was very shy about, for example, kissing the starlets, which he had to do at the end. And they really had to um, you know push him Towards this beautiful starlet to get him to lock lips, and he had he married quite young a, a girl a, a woman who was very petite and uh, looked like his little baby sister. It was quite an odd marriage. Uh, they had no children, and he behaved towards her in this extraordinarily uxorious way, including writing her little love notes every day that were unbearably saccharine honeyed love, honey, honeyed love, and you just get the feeling that instead of a mature relationship, there was this kind of romantic, I don't know, froth that took the place of a real relationship.
0: Do you think they had a sort of seriously, properly sexual relationship?
1: I, impossible to know. Um, they always said they wanted children, and there's been a lot of speculation about whether, who, why they couldn't have children, and uh, I we know that he did have sex because he had an affair, one affair, which seems completely out of character at first. It's with, believe it or not, the widow of Jack London, the great short story writer and novelist. So he had an affair with Charmian London after Jack London's death. And we know this because it's annotated in Charmian London's diaries, and he... Is very intense for it's for about a week a few a few encounters and then he backs off and becomes once again the impeccable husband and I think that it's out of character to begin with and then it suddenly shows his real character which is as Charmian London says in her diary she calls him a cautious soul and I think that that's really amazing for a guy who hangs upside down a um, hundred feet in the air in a in a straitjacket or who dives into a river at some level emotionally he was a cautious soul um, she had a, she had his number I think <laughs> also
0: his his wife who seemed to be equally devoted to him in some ways she had to compete and that must have pissed her off occasionally she had to compete for his affections with his mother
1: oh oh gosh yes I f- I'm glad you mentioned the mother. I hadn't mentioned that one of the peculiarities of Houdini is that he was completely and utterly obsessed with his mother, to a, a point that drives other biographers completely nutty, and they, you know, construct vast Freudian edifices around the fact that he was uh, just completely couldn't manage to tell his wife that he loved her without mentioning that he also loved his mother a little bit more. And that um, you know when when she was buried when he was sorry when she was he was buried he had her letters to him put under his head in the casket but you know it's, um, it's it's just a quirk of his that can be used to explain him or can just be you know I know I had, had Tom Lehrer's of-
0: song about Oedipus going round in my head all the way through <laughs> but there was extraordinary moment where he. He buys her, like, one of Queen Victoria's old dresses. Yes. And, you know, dresses this nice old, you know, Brooklyn-dwelling doll up in Queen Victoria's dress and sticks a crown on her head. I mean.
1: Yes. He, he for her uh, 70... I think it's her 70th birthday or 75th birthday, he, he brought her across to Europe, to back to Hungary, back to Budapest, where they'd left, and dressed her up in this... Dress she he'd bought from a dressmaker who was exhibiting it in the window a few weeks after Queen Victoria died as a, a dress that they had made for her. Whether this is all true is another question. This is Houdini after all. But he he invited everybody she knew in Budapest to come and have tea with her in this dress. The fact that she knew about three people in Budapest at this point, you know, probably didn't dampen the party. But then, for the rest of her life, he kept getting people, famous people, to send her telegrams. And when he couldn't get famous people to send her telegrams, he would make up telegrams from royalty to send to her so that she would feel that she was, again, royalty. It was quite an obsession. It
0: was. Also, he had this thing, I mean, you know, the, the buying of the dress, you know, when he had means, he would spend. Oh, yes. And he started collecting. You know, absolutely monomaniacally, and not just magic stuff. I'm interested in what where you think that fits into his his character. Is that part of the being established? Being you know, because he was not a very lettered man, but
1: he was a no. fantastic bibliomane. No, he didn't even have a, a high school diploma, Um and I don't think he went to school very often. But he did as as as. In it say, after he made it big, he started reading and he started collecting. And he bought everything. He bought book after book after book to the point where I, when he died, I think he gave 5,000 volumes to the Library of Congress. He gave another huge tranche to, to Harvard's theater department. And he, he just became a complete bibliom- bibliophile and i think part of this had to do with reclaiming his father's legacy as a rabbi so that he would he if he wasn't going to be religious he was anyway going to be a, one of the people of the book and then and then partly he it was part of his drive to be number 1 he always wanted to collect in an area where he could have the largest collection so he wanted to corner the market on magic for example and for a while he tried to corner the market on on President Lincoln, believe it or not. Partly, I think, because Lincoln was assassinated in the theatre, but, uh, you know, collectors have their own inner compulsions.
0: Now, on the subject of inner compulsions, I'm interested in two kind of major swerves he makes in the story in your book, you know, both of which are, you could look at, you know, if you were to be one of those biographers who overinterprets, as, in some sense, kind of Oedipal, he turns on Robert Houdin with this extraordinary savagery mm. and then he turns on, which you would think is sort of, in a sense, biting the hand it feeds you, turns on the, the showbiz tricks of spiritualists and mediums. Yes. Why do you think he has these kind of sudden reverses? What drove them? Because he really went far in both of those cases.
1: Yes. The, the Robert Houdin was earliest and it was quite shocking. He... Uh, wrote a book called The Unmasking of Robert Houdin. And in it, he essentially accuses Robert Houdin of everything he did. So this, again, a rather Trumpian ploy. Every single crime that that, that Houdini committed, his stealing other people's tricks, using uh, ghostwriters, being a, a huckster, all of these things he accuses Robert Houdin of doing. Of course, this book that he accuses in which he accuses Robert Houdin of using a ghostwriter, was written by a ghostwriter. So it's a little bit blatant. But that's a swerve. Lots of people have called it edible, killing his father. It's, I, for me, what it is, is one, establishing himself as the greatest, because if he is greater than Robert Houdin, he's the greatest. And the other is that it took him out of the business of competing with his contemporaries and put him into the business of competing with the all-time legends. And I think that's where is was where he wanted to be. What was the second swerve was...
0: Well, it was uh, the, the spiritualism, oh, the yes, crusade against the mediums and seances and all that malarkey.
1: That starting in, starting in, at when he, in 1920, when he met Arthur Conan Doyle, Houdini embarked on the last phase of his career, which was, to discredit spiritualism and to unmask like the unmasking of Robert Houdin unmask fake mediums well all mediums are fake you might say unmask anyone who claims to put people in touch with the spirits of the dead and he did this in part because he was incensed that anybody should play on the mourning of somebody who's lost a loved one because he was himself so crushed by the death of his mother. But the other reason why I think he unmasks people is because he thought their, their trickery was shoddy. He thought that the mediums were essentially lousy magicians, and he wanted to point out how bad they were. So he would go to seances, and in the dark, they would do their hocus-pocus, and he would pull out a, a flashlight and train it on the... Medium in mid hocus pocus and yell, I am Houdini and you are a fraud. Um, and this made headlines again and, and brought more notoriety to him. In it's fact, a bit like you're fired as a catchphrase. <laughs> yes, exactly. Anyway, um, yeah, no, it, it was the it was the last battle of his life, and in in a sense, this this problem with spiritualists and mediums. Goes beyond his death because, of course, when Houdini died on Halloween, mediums all over the world, spiritualists claimed that he had been killed by spiritual forces, by including Arthur Conan Doyle, who believed certainly that that his death, that that spirits had played a part in his death. So, yes, that that's a swerve that haunted him, shall we say? Yes, I was going to say. You know,
0: you should tell us what actually happened to his death, because there's a lot of myths surrounding it. But are you worried that too will let daylight in on magic?
1: Uh, no, I can go ahead with uh, I, that that's my magic, Sam. I can, I can, um, I can reveal that one. Houdini was on his on what turned out to be his last tour, and it didn't go well. He he on his first one of his early shows, he broke a bone in his ankle, and then he was hobbling and in pain, and went up to Montreal where he was not looking well at all and saw some McGill students. And one of the McGill students in his dressing room at the theater asked if he could try out his, Houdini's re- legendary strength and punch him in the abdomen. Houdini, what didn't really pay attention, or may have said vaguely yes, but anyway, this kid attacked him and punched him repeatedly in the abdomen um, until Houdini said, enough, enough. And that is all documented as true. What happens next is that Houdini gets progressively more ill with what turns out to be appendicitis. But he refuses to go to the doctor. And five or six days go by, and he gets really quite ill. And by the time he goes to the hospital, it's way too late. When he's opened up, his appendix has already burst. So he dies of peritonitis, which was an unavoidable death in those days because there were no antibiotics. So stubbornness and um, sort of hubris killed him and an unwillingness to trust doctors. He does seem to have a lot of Trumpian attributes, my friend Houdini. Unwillingness to trust doctors put an end to him. The spiritualists claimed immediately that the kid who punched him had his hand guided by... A, a, an angry spirit who wanted vengeance for his anti-spiritual cr- crusade. But I think that we can just put it down to not listening to the doctor's advice.
0: <laughs> so sad. Now you call him my friend Houdini. I, I'm interested, I mean, to pull focus a bit on, you know, what you do as a biographer. You know, I didn't get the sense from this book that you always particularly
1: liked your subject.
0: Does it help to like your subject or to admire them? Or to be
1: in that corner as a writer? I think it does. Um, I think it does. I think I was a little handicapped by not being hugely fond of Houdini. I admire Houdini, I admired his drive and I admired his relentlessness, and I and and he could be very generous at surprising times, and he and there's something endearing about his his drive to better himself, as it were. His his drive to acquire knowledge and to master subjects uh, and and his drive to be number one but th- I think that this was a short biography it's a, a more biographical essay than a full blown um, you know 500 page biography I wouldn't, I don't think have been able to spend five years with Houdini which is what I spent with Updike I, I only spent three years with the absolutely charming Felix Nadal and if i believed that there was a market for a a three volume biography of Felix Nadal, I would have happily written it because hanging out with him was a joy. Yes, one really gets
0: a sense with Nadal that you, you sort of adored him and the reader you know, that comes through when you're reading that book. You I did adore you fall in love with him.
1: Um and you and, 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 and of course he was a genius. His photo- his photographs are, are fantastic. Houdini was a genius too. You know, he, he the, the 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 acts he invented and the way he put escapology at the center of his career was a stroke of genius. You, you don't get to where Houdini got in this world without an extraordinary spark. But, but the problem with, with writing about Houdini and his genius is that his genius is ephemeral. You can't actually show somebody a magic trick unless you're a magician. You know, it, it only works on stage it doesn't work. Magic tricks don't really work on the page. And I could show Updike's prose off on the page, and I can show who, um, Nadal's photographs on the page. But what can I show of of Houdini's?
0: Did you feel you were doing a different job in those different biographies? I mean, because, you know, Nadal was another genius of publicity. And in a sense, yes. when you're talking about Nadal, you're talking about this particular kind of cultural moment in the Belle Epoque, and, Mm -hmm. you know, with Houdini, you're talking about a particular cultural moment in early 20th century America. Yes. With Updike, was it more you were trying to look at him as a literary figure? Yeah, it was a literary biography.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a bit of a biography sceptic, which is probably not what I should be admitting in front of all these people. I, I think of literary biography especially is only useful insofar as it illuminates the work of the writer in question um, and so I thought of my job writing about Updike was specifically to help people to read Updike and because frankly writers' lives aren't that interesting they sit in alone in a room and they write uh, and so and Nadal's life was of course much more interesting because he was a, an adventurer and a, a marvelous a uh, charmer as well as a, a photographer. So it, it, it's true that biography is very different if the, if the métier is different. Yeah,
0: as, as a literary biographer, how much do you have kind of the new critics squatting on your shoulders? You know, is it hard to push through this idea of thinking, what I'm doing is just gossip, this is the biographical fallacy, it's all there in the work, I shouldn't be doing this in the first place. I mean, does that hamper you? No, I've never worried
1: about that. I think I've read you saying somewhere that it was just higher gossip, literary biography. I meant um, that as a compliment, obviously. <laughs> I, no, I, I went through graduate school uh, alternately trying to absorb and fend off various different literary theories. And in the end, I, I kind of ended up with the late Harold Bloom who said, that you are your best method, that everything you bring to a literary work is, adds to it. And so if you bring biographical information to reading a text, you're bringing more. Um, you don't need to exclude anything. You should bring everything that's at your disposal to reading. You should bring everything that is at your disposal to writing also.
0: Adam Begley, thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it, if you hated it, don't feel don't really you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.
1: The Spectator magazine combines incisive political commentary with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Stock up on your summer reading with a 12-week subscription, in print and online for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a copy of Spectator columnist Lionel Shriver's new book, The Motion of the Body Through Space, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash Lionel.